are listening to a podcast from The National. Ride-hailing platforms Kareem and Uber, are they really on a converging path? And if they are, is that a good thing for the Middle East and North Africa? And later, we'll hear from the head of the Stimson Center about the UAE's global leadership position in renewable energy. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast from the Nationals Newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief, and with me is Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon, Mustafa. It's been a very busy week. Yeah, it has indeed. Corporate, has indeed. government, economy, otherwise. Uh, we're going to focus a little bit now on uh, tech and, and transport, Kareem and Uber. Uh, so th- there's been reports of... Um, a possible tie-up between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, they are competitors mm-hmm. and rivals uh, for the uh, ride-hailing business, if you like. Uh, but this isn't, you know, just to give the, the listeners some background, um, the, the Nationals reporting has been that uh, if anything were to happen, it's more likely Uber would buy Kareem outright mm-hmm. uh, rather than there being necessarily any kind of merger of equals. Yeah. Uh, but this talk has been going on for a while. It's been going mm. on over the summer, right? You've been here. We've been hearing about this off and on mm-hmm. that there could be something between Cream and Uber. There's definitely been something going on with Uber in this past year, hasn't there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at markets that that they have exited, um, you know, and, and Russia, China, uh, Southeast Asia to an extent, um, you know, they they have obviously made it clear that those areas that they do not feel that they have um, the required strength and presence um, that they're going to pull out of. But they have made it clear that Middle East is not one of those. Um, and as you say, through those comments over the over the summer, I think people, you know, as you said earlier, put two and two together and assumed it must mean uh, something to do with Kareem. But now with this uh, report that um, Uber's, dis- it's, it's not, it won't um, merge with Kareem because in its own words, it is, uh, a bigger player it's it's um a more significant presence and it doesn't need to exit uh, or indeed uh merge with um with Kareem it just buy it basically which would save it money um in the sense that uh both of them uh, burn about about 400 million a year uh, according to sources um so put them two together and uber then saves cash basically um i mean look i I'm I'm a bit hesitant and, and skeptical over this whole thing. I mean, first of all, the numbers knocking around of valuations that this could um, achieve for Kareem and its investors anywhere up to two and a half billion dollars. Mm-hmm. It was only five minutes ago that it was the first unicorn at a billion dollars, yeah. which actually got it a lot of attention around yeah. the world yeah. and sort of made people sit up and notice. Wow, the Middle East has got a billion dollar tech company yeah. in yeah. Kareem, yeah. which is amazing, a great achievement. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that it goes toe-to-toe with Uber in this region in and of itself is, is quite important as well. Um, but Uber is valued, as you quite rightly said, it's a much bigger company, $68 billion. Mm. So the potential for Kareem uh, and where it can grow to mm. is, is one of the reasons why I would say it's not necessarily a good thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If, if, they, if there was to be any kind of deal between the two. I mean, the consumer, first of all, probably benefits from the competition. Uh, but, but secondly... Um, you know, you, the, the, I think there's an element of private markets going on here. You think of Facebook pre-IPO, Twitter pre-IPO. They talk about building up their valuations. So ultimately, the exit was at the highest possible yeah. uh, number. Yeah. You know, for the for the earlier investors, absolutely. And for the next people who come in, they have to pay more. So I think there's a little bit of that going on. Um, but if I'm if I, if I sort of 
say, forget the skepticism mm. for a moment, and and we just talk about um, where Kareem is. Um, it's sort of heading towards being like Uber, mirroring Uber, being more of a tech platform, which mm-hmm. Uber constantly reminds mm-hmm. us we're a tech company, we're yeah. a tech company. Yeah. Um, and um, as I understand it, Kareem has uh, sort of uh, innovation R&D hubs um, in Berlin, in uh, Dubai, in Pakistan, has 400 engineers. Um, its platform is developing. It's going to do food delivery at some mm-hmm. point. Um, it could become just you know a huge platform. I mean, yeah. I remember when Amazon once only sold books. Yeah, yeah. And look what it does now. That was prehistoric, wasn't it? Exactly, right? So, and if you think about where Uber's going, what it's trying to do, then there's a long way to go in terms of Kareem's trajectory. Um, Plus, um, and look, Uber's a huge success story. So don't let me think that I'm I'm not snubbing Uber here. Mm. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that they're not a a great company. They are. But I'm just thinking in terms of a regional champion. Yeah. And I'm thinking in those terms of Kareem, um, that essentially any kind of deal like this might derail that. I mean, the soft skills. I mean, when Kareem started out with, with its founders being from the UAE, yeah. they they care about it really in, in an emotional way. Uh, another founder is Pakistani. They're very successful in Pakistan. Yep. There's no, yep. Yep. it's not coincidence. No. Another big investor, a big partner is, is Saudi. Mm-hmm. So that helps them there. Um, they're in countries like Iraq. Yeah. And the reason why is because yeah. they believe in the Middle East and Jordan, North Africa. Egypt, Morocco. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they, they believe in, in the impact that their platform can have in these communities. Again, not not to, to, to say that Uber doesn't, mm. but, um, you know, Kareem is homegrown and that's yeah. important. I think it is important. I think um, I think no matter where you are, if, if, if it's a, a company that's um, developed in or from your country uh, or your region, then you automatically assume that there is an affiliation with you as the customer that somebody from outside wouldn't necessarily have. Now, as you say, Uber is not necessarily a bad company. Um, but there could be another reason why it's looking to, um, if if it's true, looking to take over Kareem. Um, as it as you say, it always says it's it's a tech platform, but and it has developments in driverless cars and this, that, and the other. But it's significantly behind um, in that sort of area uh, by companies such as Google and Waymo. Um, and if it has another competitor in an area where it does have quite a strong presence anyway. Uh, it would you can imagine it making sense for them to go just buy it and then shut it, and we'll just take up whatever technology they've got that we don't have. I thought I was cynical <laughs> earlier, but, the, but I mean I understand where you come from. There's also kind of a tempting narrative here when we had the big deal with Amazon and Souk of having mm. sort of a homegrown that a big the big player comes in and and, and sort of makes yeah. the acquisition and it was a huge number six hundred fifty million dollars yeah. reportedly yeah. made everyone sit up and sort of said you know we can have real exits. Yeah. So I can imagine for a certain group. Um, in in this region that they would they would see tempting to have something similar happen mm. but I also have to say again I'm not trying to be cynical but to say that the actual investment ecosystem in this region is quite small they all know yeah. each other yeah. uh, the thing about ride hailing is everybody's invested in everybody else yeah I mean Uber shares the same investors yeah. um, as as some of its competitors like yeah. DD and and, and, and grab and, and, and other yeah. others right and and certainly with Kareem a lot of their investors are the same mm-hmm. um you know they've got Saudi investors they uh, Uber's got Saudi investors yeah. I'm not saying they're the same, yeah, but yeah. Um, you know, the, the, everybody has decided that they believe in tech, they believe in where it's going, but no one's quite sure what the ultimate winners are going to be. So let's invest in everyone. Yeah, yeah, hedge your bets. So yeah. the rising tide will lift all boats because yeah. it, everyone's in every boat. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I kind of feel like there's no jeopardy. Yes, in I've, a way, yeah, right? Yeah, I think I think that's probably very true from an investor's point of view. Um, 
if you if you if you own all the horses in a race, you're going to win. So no matter what, right? no matter what. But I mean, look, I, I think I think there's the, the last thing to say on this subject is that you know the uh, the two cultures do seem at odds anyway. They do Uber and Kareem, and you know where Kareem calls their their drivers captains, um, Uber calls them something else depending on which part of the world you're in. <laughs> yes, but yeah. you ra- you raise a really valid point, which which brings us to the next story, which is about sort of um, the other technologies like driverless cars, automation, mm-hmm. uh, which bring us quite neatly to the, the business extra's favorite billionaire, oh, yeah. Elon Musk. Yeah. Elon Musk. Yeah. What's going on with Tesla this week in our in what's becoming our, our weekly Elon <laughs> weekly. Musk roundup? Yeah. Uh, well, today t- uh, it was announced that Tesla is the subject of a US uh, Justice Department criminal in- investigation uh, over the public statements he, he made uh, regarding possibly taking the company private. Um, the SEC, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, has already launched a, uh, a probe into uh, the tweets and the implication from Musk that he already had the cash available um, off the back, he said a bit later, of it, um, the backing of uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, PIF. Um, they haven't commented on that, as they never do. But it has now got very serious for for Tesla and Mr. Musk on on that front, um, and it's it hit the shares. Uh, shares are down around four and a half percent today. The news was on Wednesday. The news was uh, released today that he was subject of the uh, DOJ criminal investigation. Um, now, I think personally that that this um, is another nail in the coffin, and I don't think I think the writing's on the wall for Tesla myself. That's a bad thing. Yeah. I, for electric cars, I, th- I think if Tesla fails, if you like, in some way, whether 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 it's in financial terms or otherwise, it's a huge dent in uh, consumer confidence in the concept of owning an electric car. And and it, and and so there's a, so much riding on this. I mean, beyond just transport, but the environment and everything. I th- I can see where you're coming from, but I I don't think so. I don't think Tesla now. And certainly not in the very near future is going to be this uh, this kind of white knight of of electrification of transport and 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 this green knight of uh, clean energy and um, personal transport methods. You you look at the situation at the moment. You have VW, Toyota, Volvo, which is going to put out an all electric range and nothing else in in two to three years. BMW, Daimler, Mercedes, and US makers. Don't forget Ford and GM will all have a wide range of electric or hybrid electric by around 2020. And that's right across the board from entry level to, you know, the super fast top end BMWs. You've got Dyson, the vacuum cleaner maker, investing £2 billion to build its own electric car. I think we're at a situation where Tesla is going to go down the tubes for a combination perfect storm that it's in at the moment. It's a massive debt pile, $10 billion dollars. It's expected to need another $2 billion before the end of the year. Uh, they're in trouble with the law. And I think their shareholders are going to start leaving in droves. And if that includes the PIF, which has a 5% share in it, I think that's very, very serious for Tesla indeed. Is it for the electric car revolution? Absolutely not. No. I think it's the end of the beginning for them. I think it's the next phase of what is an unstoppable electric revolution. And it will become clearer in the next two to three years quite how huge and wide-ranging that revolution will be. So, no, it's, it's not a problem for electric cars in general. 
The irony is is that the uh, the investment in the uh, the American uh, electric car maker Lucid, given Elon Musk's problems, yeah, by the PIF. Yeah, um, I mean they couldn't have picked a better name. Uh, yes, to contrast with how he's been lately. Yes, uh, I take your point. Um, there's been a lot. There's a lot of investment. A lot of different players in the electric car market. Um, it's very true. Uh, I just feel that Elon Musk has become so synonymous with the electric car market, particularly for American consumers. And obviously America is a really big market. We can't speak to China yet. Mm. Not really mm. sure. You know, well, they're from, of course developing their own range yes, as well. So. But from our vantage point, the other big car market, market that mm. in, in America, they'll- The world's biggest in fact. Yeah. yeah. Look, I mean, the reason why I say it is because Tesla's cool, right? Yeah. Tesla's become cool. I mean, you know, we, we you, you meet someone who actually owns a Tesla up until recently, they're very, very pleased with themselves. Mm. Um, and if something were to go wrong and that cachet was to to disappear, um, then I think we're back to the days when it's a Prius or a Leaf, yeah. or something that isn't cool, yeah. right? Yeah. And and yeah. I think when it, we all like to feel like we're driving something that has a certain amount of status. Definitely, yeah, of course. That's why Rolls Royce sells and 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 that. You know, yeah. If you got the money, then yeah. So I'd, I'd be interested to see who fills that vacuum. Well, I, you know, as I say, forward. I think I think Lucid is quite possibly able to fill the top end. I mean, and in fact, the lower end, from a Tesla point of view, they say their car will start in 2020, off the back of the investment by the PAF, will allow them to commercially launch the first vehicle by 2020. Um, and they say that the car's base price will be uh, $60,000 or 52500 after federal tax credits in the US. Um, it can produce 400 horsepower. It does 400 kilometers to a charge, but it also, that's that's your, your Model S uh, area sorted out. But it is also going to build a, a, a thousand horsepower version that can do 1,200 kilometers uh, on a charge, although that will be a hell of a lot more expensive at, well, according to the company, well north of $100,000. But that, that locks in the top end for Tesla as well. And from the drawings I've seen of these concepts, the concept car was shown in, uh, in, uh, um, America earlier this year and from those pictures and, and the drawings that you see it's an astonishing looking machine it make that then this is hard to believe possibly it makes Tesla look dated now once these news you know from lucid and then from the higher end uh, ranges from the big manufacturers start coming out and start looking at the business I think Tesla is gonna lose its cachet it's gonna be like you know owning a pre a pre Dyson vacuum cleaner you know so as we said uh, at the top of the show, it's been a busy week uh, in Abu Dhabi, you know, UAE and wider sort of corporate business scene. Uh, earlier this week, I went to meet Brian Finley, who's the president and CEO of the non-partisan Washington-based think tank, the Stimson Center. Uh, they've been here with their partners in the UAE, the Trends Research and Advisory Think Tank, uh, to launch the UAE Energy Diplomacy Report. So I went to the launch and uh, we discussed how the Emirates can use its expertise in renewable energy to help itself and millions in developing economies around the world to prosper. I've just heard uh, from yourself and your distinguished panel that the UAE has done so much in terms of um, renewable energy diplomacy in the developing world, in what you call the global south, yet you, you say quite succinctly the story isn't complete yet. So what's the next the next chapter look like in terms of what the, the Stimson Center and Trends is thinking? Uh, it's a great question. Thanks for, for, uh, for having me do this. Uh, I really am grateful. Um, 
uh, so Stimson has been involved for 30 years on uh, issues of uh, um, uh, renewable energy and uh, and many other kind of transnational issues that cut across borders and have impacts both on security as well as broad development issues. So we've done a lot of work in developing countries and, and as you say, uh, what we call the Global South. Um, and it's uh, clear to us whether we are in Sub-Saharan Africa, whether we are in South uh, East Asia or in complex parts of Latin America and Central America, that energy and access to energy will not only drive um, the ability of countries to emerge from grinding poverty, but also um, avoid conflict. And so uh, it's an issue that we have long held uh, uh, near and dear to our research agenda at, at Stimson. Uh, what brought us to UAE was just a recognition that uh, for so many countries that are leaning into uh, insignificant ways, both at the government level and in terms of uh, private innovation, uh, renew, uh, renewable energy, um, we are in so many cases in my native Canada, uh, in the United States, my adopted homeland, uh, across Western Europe, we're encumbered by uh, challenged bureaucracies that have difficulty uh, collaborating effectively with uh, private industry and moving innovation to market in a facilitated way. Uh, so when we layer upon that the challenges of operating in countries where markets are not evident or markets are complicated to access, obviously you need government support to, to facilitate that. We came to the conclusion that uh, because of the significant investments that have already been made uh, here in UAE in a number of different ways, Mazdar and, and, and so forth, that there is a unique opportunity for a more nimble government like the UAE to capitalize upon um, uh, the collaborations that it does have with private industry and to bring those technologies to quote-unquote market in a more facilitated and rapid and effective way in areas of the world that are experiencing uh, what we call energy poverty, right? The lack of access to, to, to energy. And all the better if that energy can be, it can come from renewable sources, uh, obviously because there are implications for climate, there are implications for food, for water, and so forth. And the sustainable development goal number seven, yes, sir. Um, which is, is talking about access to affordable and sustainable energy for all people, that ties in quite nicely with what the UAE has already been doing in terms of renewable projects around the world. But what you're saying in terms of taking that further and, and may perhaps not necessarily having just the commercial rationale for the investment in scaled renewable projects, but also to say what's going to have the biggest impact in terms of quality of life in that area, whether it's in the Pacific or Sub-Saharan Africa or anywhere that, that, that might require it. And for the UA to kind of take a more institutionalized approach to say where will we be able to have a sustainable project that is also going to have huge impact. Is that, is that, is that the vision? I think that's exactly right. So UAE has uh, highlighted a number of uh, objectives uh, within the sustainable development goals. And number seven, in interestingly, was not among them. They talked about South-South collaboration, they talked about uh, capacity building, they talked about a number of different issues that are around, certainly around the periphery of, uh, uh, of SDG number seven. Um, 
uh, and what we are saying is that we can, we believe that UAE has the unique capacity to focus um, global attention on uh, SDG 7, but beyond that, to fix the challenges I think that are preventing um, governments, particularly in the developing world, from truly experiencing and accessing energy security in a more uh, in, in a more uh, significant way. It's previous experience. It's 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 UAE's own experience, frankly, uh, in in developing uh, renewables, and and the experience of UAE, in truth, is just much closer to these countries than you know the developed countries of Western Europe, or you know, their experience is so far away that UAE has a much more tangible and practical story to tell, I think. And I guess the rapid development of the UAE is, is perhaps one of the more unique aspects. But as, as you said, they understand uh, not long ago what it was like to be shorn of resources and to, and to perhaps be, be starting from scratch, which a lot of these other developing nations. Um, in particular, you, you're saying Southeast Asia represents quite a bit of opportunity for the UAE in terms of energy diplomacy. Yeah, it's one of, I would say, a number of uh, of regions of the world that that I think could benefit from the example that UAE has demonstrated in the past and the leadership that UAE could bring, I think, in terms of that connection between government and industry and technology um, for the future. Um, it's an area of the world that obviously is incredibly important in so many different areas. Uh, and that truly is, I think, on, uh, it, it is, is threatened by uh, uh, by pockets of energy poverty that could yield challenges across the board to food, to water, and ultimately to conflict. So I mean, if we go more broadly and, and talk about energy security, I mean, one of the important aspects of, of the UAE's efforts uh, to secure its own energy sources has been nuclear. Mm -hmm. and, um, and you yourself, Brian, your personal areas of expertise include sort of the you know how to ensure the non-proliferation mm -hmm. of, 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 of nuclear mm -hmm. threat if mm -hmm. you like um, and there's there's always a fine line between ensuring that countries are able to pursue energy security ambitions such as nuclear energy and then the issues we're having elsewhere mm -hmm. in the world such as North Korea mm -hmm. and Iran where mm -hmm. those nuclear ambitions are actually becoming a threat to nations around them mm -hmm. as well so I mean in your how have you seen this year it's been quite intense 2018 in terms of the issue of non-proliferation mm. with regards to North Korea and Iran. Mm. So that's a big, that's a great question. It's um, a big topic, and, and I realize. It's a, it's yeah. a big topic, and, and, but I'm going to answer it in two different ways because there's also a UAE story, I think, that's, that really runs parallel to the discussion we were just having uh, on energy security. So a number of years ago, um, we, uh, again, actually, actually in, in, in Southeast Asia, we brought together a number of countries um, that were interested in exploring or advancing um, plans for nuclear power generation. Um, and again, it's a little bit similar, the same, uh, the same challenge, right? So the story of the United States and nuclear power, the story of France and nuclear power for these countries, for Vietnam, for these other countries that are considering uh, um, uh, pursuing a, a wider pathway uh, for nuclear power generation, it, it, the, the examples are too far away, right? They're, they're poor uh, interlocutors to these countries. Um, and so we approached um, the nuclear regulator here in uh, in, uh, in in the UAE, uh, and they kindly 
transported themselves on a plane and we brought them to, to Southeast Asia to a regional, a series of regional conferences where we brought those that were uh, working most closely from um, uh, uh, on uh, power generation and plans for power generation. And instead of, uh, you know, you know, me relaying my experience as a Canadian or my colleagues in the United States or the French, uh, the UAE told the story. Here's, here's, here's what we saw. Here's why we pursued it. Here are the challenges that we foresaw. Here are the challenges that we didn't foresee. Here's what you are going to have to think about. Here are the struggles that you're going to face because we just faced it. We just went through this. Um, and it was a remarkable connection again, you know, between the UAE and the ability of UAE to access uh, and tell the story uh, and share information was so much more effective than what we could do. Um, so there's an interesting parallel, just uh, as an aside. In terms of the wider challenges uh, we're facing, look, the, you know, the, the future is always uh, more uh, scary than the past has been. Um, but the uh, you know present day is pretty scary in terms of uh, of what we're seeing on the proliferation front, and I think um, a lot of the uh, language that we are seeing uh, among all parties right now has really ratcheted up um, the the, um, uh, the 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 pressure uh, on on all parties. Um, whether you're talking in, in North Korea or in Iran, obviously the potential for disaster is, is pretty high. Uh, on the other hand, I think, uh, and, and, and it, it's quite clear that uh, there's a lot of criticism of uh, the Trump administration and how they've managed uh, these files. Um, we're seeing some potential progress in, uh, in, in, in North Korea. We'll see how that plays out. Um, my bigger concern right now really is Iran, and I think that that is the next uh, potential, hopefully, I use this term not literally, battleground uh, uh, around proliferation, with the cancellation of uh, the JCPOA. Uh, with uh, with Iran, uh, there is really an uncertain future, I think. Um, and until I think we can get to a point where we can reasonably uh, engage in a in a comfortable dialogue with uh, with Tehran, uh, we are going to be on pins and needles in terms of what the future could look like. Uh, one of your theories on on how to tackle non-proliferation or the smuggling of, mm -hmm. of, of nuclear information mm -hmm. materials is to tackle all smuggling. Mm -hmm. um, so is is that similar to what's happening with, with Iran in the sense that not just dealing with one aspect of Iran in terms of the nuclear, but mm -hmm. there's sort of, and, and I know there's been quite a bit of criticism on how Trump has approached this, particularly in the Europe, but it seems like what, what uh, the Trump administration is saying is we're going to tackle all the problem because within that we'll, we'll also tackle the nuclear issue. Right. Is that similar to what you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, right. but is it similar to what you're saying, the only way to deal with, you know, stopping the smuggling of, of nuclear information and materials is to is to tackle all smuggling right so yeah it's a great question and obviously that you know addressing proliferation is uh, it requires a multifaceted response there are formal processes that we're negotiating in new york and 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 implementing on a treaty-based system uh and there are i think very practical national activities that can be happening as well um to your point though as we look at how proliferation is being facilitated today, how countries or even potentially uh, organizations, sub-state actors are obtaining uh, not just nuclear but biological, chemical, um, um, 
uh, precursors and materials to, to weaponize them and use them for nefarious purposes. It's being supported by a black market. Right? And those black markets uh, are not committed to nuclear proliferation. They're committed to making money. Um, and so whether they are uh, moving human slaves or whether they're moving counterfeit t-shirts or they're moving nuclear materials or dual-use items um, It's clear that we have really done I think a poor job as an international community and even on a national basis in terms of merging these threats and acting in a slightly more nimble way to be able to say look the same individual that is uh, moving this product across this border um, or putting product on this ship or taking intellectual knowledge and moving it um, uh, may be in some cases in terms of the that those kind of that the, the middlemen um, are, are in many cases the same actors that are are, are moving these other uh, contraband items so how do we focus our energies a little bit more in a dedicated way to interrupt those trafficking patterns that's one way right there but as mm -hmm. I say it's a it requires certainly a multifaceted response to to address proliferation today and you were talking a little bit about the Trump administration and, mm -hmm. and, and kind of some of the criticism they're getting. I mean, the, the Stimson Center is a DC-based think mm -hmm. tank. Um, you say you're nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. That must hurt these days being nonpartisan, right? It's the worst thing you can be. You've got to be either <laughs> yeah. for or against yeah. something, right? Yeah. Yes, so seemingly that is the case. Uh, but, but interestingly, you know, it, it, it's it's difficult on uh, uh, in some ways, and it actually facilitates our agenda. I think in other ways that while uh, you know when we turn on the television uh, uh, or, or watch the news you know that there is uh, obviously some excitement in seeing someone shouting at the top of their lungs and uh, having a debate uh, on a split screen uh, that's not what we do um, you know what we do is really try to operate in a much more practical and pragmatic way and bring parties together not in front of the television screen but behind the scenes uh, to come up with solutions and believe it or not there is still uh, this is a hopeful sign. There's still a, a strong appetite in Washington, even, for nonpartisan solutions. So, so sort of these the, these stories of the demise of the center ground are perhaps over, overdone. You think? I, I believe they're overdone. Um, I believe that there is still a um, a, a strong constituency, even in Washington D.C. Uh, for reasonable people to solve big problems and, and that's really the crux of our work whether we're talking about nuclear proliferation uh, development of renewable energies food security uh, 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 peacekeeping or You know pick your issue Illegal fishing off the coast of Indonesia, you know, we want to find solutions We recognize that we need to find common solutions and those solutions are not going to come from one extreme or the other They really are going to come from that moderate middle Brian Finley from the Stimson Center, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks so much for making the time. So that's pretty much it for the uh, Business Extra podcast this week. All remains is for me to thank uh, Chris Nelson. Thanks Pleasure. for being with us. Pleasure, Mustafa. And our producer, Kevin Jeffers. Uh, thank you to all of you for listening and do join us again next time.